Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. For today's episode, we wanted to provide some background on the recent terrorist attacks by Hamas and Israel by returning to a Hot Wash interview with Jonathan Schanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the author of Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. I spoke with Shanzer in November of 2021 about an attack from earlier that year when Hamas launched more than 4,000 rockets and mortars toward Israel, killing 12 and injuring more than 100. Israeli airstrikes inside the cramped quarters of Gaza resulted in the deaths of more than 200, including at least 129 civilians and nearly 2,000 injured, according to the United Nations. In our conversation, Shanzer details how the media covered the 2021 conflict, Iran's critical support for Hamas, and what Hamas's strategy in Gaza means for the region. Jonathan Shanzer, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Uh, so I like that in the beginning of the book, you set aside some of the larger arguments, and I think that's that's worth us doing here. We're not going to argue whether or not Hamas is a terrorist organization it's been declared so by the U.S. and by multiple others. Uh, we're not really going to engage with, is Israel an ally worth defending? Both parties, both you know, politicians and multiple administrations have deemed it so. Congress certainly does. The majority of, Amer- of U.S. opinion does. The boundaries of that support and whether or not we can criticize an ally, I think, are, are obviously still on the table. But let's talk about the, this specific conflict and what does it tell us about perceptions of these outbreaks of violence between Israel and uh, Palestinian forces? And what does that tell us about the larger dynamics of the region? Um, so first, just remind us, I mean, at this point, May of 2021 feels like a decade uh, ago. Since this is a book about the differences between media representation of the battle and what's, I think, a more nuanced understanding Let's start with that. How was it portrayed, and what did the media get wrong in covering this specific outbreak of violence? All right. Well, first, thanks for setting it up that way. I think that that is, I think, the right way to approach it. Um, look, this was the fourth Gaza war um, in over the course of more than a decade. We've seen these flare up on uh, with regularity, and I, I having followed all of them, I think that they begin to fit a certain pattern. And I think it's important to understand what, what's gone on here. But you have a small territory, it's roughly the size of Washington, D.C., and it is controlled uh, entirely by a terrorist organization known as Hamas. Hamas is sponsored uh, by Iran. It's been trained by Iran. Its weapons come from Iran. It gets a little bit of other assistance from countries like Turkey and Qatar because they are also Islamist in nature. And when these wars break out, it is never the case that Hamas is looking to win. I don't think they ever believe they are going to be able to defeat Israel, which is a strong regional power. It's not a superpower. It's still a small country, but it's a powerful small country. And I think uh, Hamas knows that it won't win. Um, but what it does know is that it will um, win by losing, that by firing rockets at Israel and then getting pounded very predictably by the Israelis when they respond, that that's when they can claim that they're under fire 
from a brutal occupation, as they would put it, which I don't think is apt for the Gaza Strip, but we can get into that if you'd like. But, you know, we, we've seen this. It is a, um, I don't even like to call it a cycle of violence. Um, it is a cycle of provocation with a very predictable response from the Israelis. And I think just even that went largely undocumented by the media, um, you know, which I think generally tried to hold Israel to account for a war that it didn't start. Let's talk specifically about some of what was the spark point of, of this specific event. To put it in the calendar context, this was supposed to be around the time where there were elections in, uh, for the Palestinian Authority. In April, directly preceding the events, Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, head of Fatah, canceled those elections. How did that create this environment or contribute to this environment where, where the uh, fighting took off? Yeah, it's, it's the perfect question to ask. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll just set it up this way, that a lot of the media coverage focused on a real estate dispute that was ongoing at the time, that there were a handful of Palestinian families that were um, uh, in the middle of a dispute that was being adjudicated in Israeli court uh, about homes that had once upon a time belonged to Jews then they were removed from those homes in previous iterations of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict. And then after 1967, they began a legal process where they were trying to get back those homes but where Palestinians lived. Um, the court case was winding its way through, and all of a sudden, people were pointing to that particular real estate conflict as the driver of everything that happened subsequently in May. But I think, as you rightly point out, John, there was additional political context that I think is really important to note. And that is that there were elections that were scheduled to take place. The Palestinians have been in a state of civil war since 2007. Okay, There was a brutal civil war that took place during that time where Hamas took over the Gaza Strip. That actually was the result of elections that Hamas won, but that the United States, Israel, the international community did not want to cede a winner and so the stalemate led to a civil war, which led to a splitting of these two Palestinian um, territories, West Bank and Gaza Strip. Now, fast and, and, forward. and the perception on the West is is clearly that Hamas is not in any way, shape or form a feasible partner for any sort of discussions for peace or, or you know, cessations of violence, that Fatah is the slightly more workable partner in, in that scenario. Yeah, it's, well, it's more pragmatic as I think the way that most people would describe it. Um, and I think that's probably fair with some, you know, some caveats, right? Um, but the the idea that, um, that these two factions would come together um, and hold elections were cause for real concern um, as, as they look to try to regain the Palestinian narrative after the Trump era, primarily. Right? Trump was not a huge booster of uh, Palestinian nationalism during those four years. So right, um, right. With, with, with Trump on his way out, the two factions said, you know what, let's hold elections, let's do this thing, let's put our fights behind us. The problem is, and this is exactly what you're getting at, is you have foreign governments, US government included, that would not be able to continue to support the Palestinian Authority, right? the recognized government, of the Palestinians if Hamas had a role to play. And so the 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 Biden team initially kind of said sure, you know, we'll support these elections. 
But as they got closer, I think the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas in particular, began to hear the concerns of the West. And in the end, he canceled those elections. It was the right thing to do, in, in, in my view, not because I wanted to see the Palestinians go at each other's throats, but because uh, you would see a full cut in funding, which would serve nobody's interest. And so Abbas uh, cuts it off. And then, you know, Hamas, I think, understandably, is furious, right? This is a group that was about to join elections, and then they were told that they can't and that there's no viable way for them to reestablish themselves politically. And I think that was probably the most important thing that contributed to this round of conflict, and it got no coverage. Hamas realized that if they couldn't win popular support by way of elections, they would win popular support the way they know how to do it best, which is by waging war against Israel. And really, they changed the entire topic of conversation. They went from being the losers in a political battle that never took place to being the heroic people fighting against Israel in the name of Jerusalem. That's what they accomplished in those 11 days of war. So I think there's uh, there were a lot of micro stories throughout. I mean, there's some very uh, tragic losses of life, children, uh, civilians in Gaza, as well as on the Israeli side. But there was one key event that actually happens towards the end of the conflict, and that's the uh, where the 12-story building that held offices for the Associated Press and Al Jazeera was struck by a, by a JDAM, by a guided uh, bomb by the Israelis. They alleged that it was being used as a like an observation post for Hamas or as head, as a as a, a base for Hamas. AP and Al Jazeera said we had no idea they were in our building and we don't think they were. Uh, there were no casualties from it, but but this is as a specific event. It kind of became a real, uh, I mean, yet another uh, lightning rod. How do you think that changed or affected how the press? perceived those events there? Oh, without a doubt, it was, I think, the moment in the war where Israel came under the most fire um, internationally. There was a lot of criticism uh, being leveled at the Israelis. Um, again, I think it's it's worth noting that, that that came without any casualties. But of course, we, we watched the destruction of a building and it was played on repeat in the Arab world. It was played on repeat, by the way, in the Israeli media and even to a certain extent here at home. And I think the more people saw this building implode, um, the more outraged they were over this. But I think there were there were some interesting um, aspects of this story that I think didn't get enough attention. The first is the role of Al Jazeera in war zones. Um, you know, people seem to forget that there was a huge amount of tension between the U.S. military and Al Jazeera during both the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. You had, I mean, I recall uh, a colleague, a former colleague of mine, John Hanna, uh, who used to work for Vice President Dick Cheney, and he was telling me about the battles that they would get into with the Qatari government, which is, you know, the government that owns Al Jazeera, that somehow the reporters were always on hand for attacks against the United States, that they seemed to be more involved in the war zone than any other uh, media outlet. Um, of course, this is the outlet that used to bring Osama bin Laden's uh, videotapes and audio tapes to the public. It, uh, it's a very pro-Hamas, pro-Islamist, pro-jihadist um, 
channel that is engaged in in really whipping up anti-American, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic sentiments over the years. And so um, the fact that that Al Jazeera was based in this building, um, you know, it's not a surprise that you, you I mean, the the United States has actually bombed Al Jazeera buildings um, in past conflicts. So I thought that the, the yeah, famously fact that, in Iraq, yeah, absolutely. That correct, right? And so the idea that that Israel sort of was the only, or you know, had gone out of its way to do something here that had never been done before it was unprecedented. I was thinking, gosh, we actually have seen this before, and why why is nobody talking about the fact that Al Jazeera is deeply controversial. We have massive problems with it, and it often finds itself in the middle of these conflicts where it shouldn't be. Um, The Israelis also went on to apparently prove to the Biden administration with intelligence that there was some kind of SIGINT operation going on inside the building, that they were trying to jam Iron Dome. Iron Dome is, of course, the missile defense, uh, uh, air defense system that the Israelis have that is something like 90 plus percent effective in targeting the the unguided rockets that are coming from Gaza into Israel. It saved probably thousands of lives, including Palestinian lives, by the way, when you think about how Israel likely would have responded to direct hits. Um, And so Israel needed Iron Dome to continue to be fully operational and that this was apparently the reason for the destruction of this tower. Um, so they had to clear it out and then I guess hit whatever the hardware was that was interfering with Iron Dome. The you know the narrative was, of course, one where Israel was just being blamed for deliberately targeting the media. Um, but that was a decision that was made by a lot of analysts and commentators before we learned about this SIGINT operation and before anybody stopped to think about the role that Al Jazeera has previously played in war zones. Did it limit the ability of AP and Al Jazeera to continue reporting from within Gaza? My understanding is that AP was able to continue to report um, about as well as it had uh, previously. Al Jazeera, um, you know, I didn't hear any direct complaints, but I look, I've got to imagine that no matter what, there was probably a lot of equipment that was destroyed um, and the ability to, to communicate stories um, was probably encumbered. I don't have any doubt that it, that it made it more difficult for these two news outlets to do their job. Um, but I think from Israel's perspective, um, this looked like the use of human shields um, by Hamas, that they were using civilian infrastructure as a cover for their military activities. And as I think we all know, this is something that the U.S. has held, had to deal with in other Western countries. Israel had to make a tough decision. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that it was the right one, but I did think that the coverage of it um, was really rather poor. Yeah, especially a lot of people I talk to actually refer to Al Jazeera as the Muslim Brotherhood Network, and people seem to fail to realize that. Oh, I, I mean, I think, you know, when you look, by the way, at the fact that the Qataris own Al Jazeera and that the Qataris are also the most important financial conduit for Hamas. Um, I I think it's kind of hard to ignore that when you start to look at the broader context of the war. I mean, you know, the Qataris have really for the last decade and a half been uh, one of the top two supporters of this terrorist organization, the other one being Iran. 
And, you know, the fact that Al Jazeera was there covering the war, first of all, you know, we can say without question that it was not a balanced coverage. That's, of course, no reason to go bomb the building. Um, but again, looking at the past history of Al Jazeera, its involvement in, in the war um, or previous war zones, plus the Qatari support for Hamas, um, the story that the Israelis were sharing that this building was potentially being exploited um, you know, I would say it's certainly not out of the realm of possible, um, if not, uh, at least from what we now understand, the Biden administration agreed with the intelligence that the Israelis showed them. And that actually could have been a, a pivotal moment where Biden could have really come out um, tough against the Israelis, you know, really could have come down on them like a ton of bricks. He gave them nine days of freedom, and, and, and that included this episode uh, to be able to wage the war in the way that they saw fit. How should News organizations report on something like this. We see, you know, Human Rights Watch, which is certainly not necessarily uncritical of Israel. Uh, they they reported on the on Hamas's use of civilians as shields. They reported on the Hamas's intentional targeting of civilians in Israel, and you know they they called those rightfully so war crimes. In addition to, uh, you know, they were critical of Israel's use of force and and the uh, deaths of civilians in their attacks. Does does it just get kind of washed out in the media as a pox on both their houses? Or, I mean, how, what's what's the right way to understand when there's this asymmetric conflict uh, and the asymmetric use of force between the two between the two parties? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I think that there is no right way uh, of covering a war. I think there's there's a, a way to cover a war with context um, and to understand what's driving this. I mean, and, and here's, I think, where I, I think, again, we saw some real mistakes from the media. Um, the Arab-Israeli conflict, as we know it, is shrinking, right? We can see this across the region. Arab states are increasingly less inclined to um, maintain the conflict as it has been since 1948. That includes peace deals with the UAE and Bahrain and Sudan and Egypt and Jordan and Morocco, right? I mean, we've got a pretty significant list. And, you know, the other thing to note is that the Palestinian conflict, while not solved, is not what it once was. You're not seeing, you know, violence erupting across the West Bank. Um, in fact, the West Bank was rather quiet during all of this. The war was in Gaza. Now, you have to ask yourself, why was the war in Gaza? Well, you have to ask yourself, who rules the Gaza Strip? It's Hamas. It's a designated terrorist group here in this country and in most countries around the world. It is armed and trained by Iran, which is the most prolific state sponsor of terrorism in the world. And Iran encourages Hamas to wage war. Now, they don't order Hamas to wage war, but certainly there's only one enemy that Hamas prepares for in its military preparedness, um, and that is Israel. And Iran really was the hidden hand behind so much of this. So when you talk about asymmetric conflict and you look at the disparity, for example, in the, the, you know, the death count or the destruction between Israel and the Gaza Strip, I, you know, I think it's just worth noting that, A, you know, this was a, a conflict that was actually launched by Hamas. Um, the Israelis didn't want the war. The Israelis prefer quiet over war 10 days out of 10. Um, and 
really what we saw, I think, was instead a cynical ploy on the part of Hamas to try to um, extract more concessions from the Israelis in terms of what aid would be delivered into the country. We saw a um, an attempt to gauge Israel's defenses. Um, in other words, they tried to fire like multiple volleys of rockets. They wanted to see whether Iron Dome could stand up to that. Um, there was a lot that was happening behind the scenes there that I think most reporters ignored um, and, and probably should have noted that this was part of a broader proxy battle um, that is now really the Iran-Israel conflict. And we see this across the Middle East. We see it in Syria. We see it in the Persian Gulf, right? This conflict has erupted in many places. I believe that Gaza is one of them. Right. And just to add a little bit more context to it as well, the Iron Dome, I mean, just the the cost of the missile response for, I mean, we're talking about 4,000 rounds. These are not sophisticated rockets. I mean, some of these are just completely, you know, ballistic mortars basically uh, coming in. I mean, the cost of Israel responding to this attack is 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 really immense. Uh, um, I mean, just talk a little bit more about how Israel prepares for indiscriminate launches of missiles. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's that that that's an, a really important point to kind of zero in on that that these are rockets that are unguided, right? These are not PGMs. They are basically. Um, they're, the Israelis call them statistical rockets. They point them in the general direction of a population center with the hope of hitting something of value, which, by the way, is in and of itself a war crime. I think that's probably worth um, worth noting here. Um, but so, you know, beginning roughly a decade ago, the Israelis come up with this new technology. Most people didn't think that it would work. Certainly, I think on the U.S. side, there was some skepticism uh, that Iron Dome would uh, be able to function the way that it has. It's been able to knock out roughly 90 percent of the rockets that are fired at Israel. And yes, some of them, without question, are just like a motor inside a piece of of pipe um, with some fins at the bottom and a makeshift cone. Um, These are I mean, they're they're really they're garbage weapons at the end of the day. But they can do immense damage um, if they if they hit. Uh, I mean, I'll just say, you know, there was one moment in the war. It was fairly early on. A mortar um, hit a gas tank um, uh, that was just in, on the other side of the Gaza border. The mortar traveled roughly six kilometers, and it was a lucky strike. It was dumb luck that it hit, but it sent fireballs. You know. Uh, flying up into the air for hours on end because the Israelis then needed to try to figure out a way to put it out with this combustible um, mix uh, on the ground there. Um, but Iron Dome really has done a terrific job in neutralizing most of these uh, attacks. Some still get through. I think the important thing to note about Iron Dome is what would happen if it was not in place? Okay, If Israel was sustaining uh, hundreds or thousands of strikes from unguided rockets, sending their people scurrying into um, uh, into shelters, how would they have to respond? What would the population demand of the IDF, of the Israel Defense Force? I think they would demand a ground war or they would demand carpet bombing in response. So when we talk about what 
you know, what kind of lives are saved. It is absolutely not the case that it only saves Israeli lives. It is something that actually gives the Israeli military time and space to be able to take a breath and decide how they want to respond and not even proportionately, right? Surgically is, I think, the, you know, the way that they have waged their war. Now, it's, it's not going to stop the, the 200 people that were unfortunately killed during this most recent round of conflict. There will be casualties. There will be death. Um, that is, the, unfortunately, the nature of war. But Iron Dome has really helped the Israelis minimize uh, casualties and minimize the scope of the conflict. It could get a lot uglier, but it doesn't because of this. And I'll just say, as just maybe as a footnote to all of this, we've seen a few members of Congress try to zero out um, Iron Dome. And also, to, by the way, to try to zero out PGMs to Israel. And really, if you think about the message that they're conveying, and we sort of jokingly refer to them as the Hamas caucus uh, of Congress, the question is, what kind of war do they want one without and the Israeli ability to knock these unguided rockets out of the sky and without the ability to respond surgically to those that are trying to attack Israel, you know, I think the message is they want a far uglier, bloodier, messier war. And I just don't think that should be the message that America sends anyone, let alone uh, in this combustible corner of the Middle East. And you touched on one thing that I think is missed often here, and I learned when I was in Iraq from one of my Iraqi counterparts, which was, I don't know what instigated the conversation, but we were talk we talked about Israel, and he was starting to take a very pro-Israel stance. So I thought, oh, I'll play a devil's advocate just to see where he stands. Uh, you know, I brought up the 67 Accord, and he said, well, that's not worth a piece of paper it's written on because all the Arabs... Uh, called King Hussein a traitor for having signed it in the first place. So how can they come back now and say that that should be adhered to? Uh, and in the end, basically what his stance was, was that he would rather make, have an agreement with Israel on just about anything because he knew that they would stand by their word, whereas he didn't feel as though even the Arab countries could be trusted to the extent that he could trust Israel. And this was the mid-2000s, I think. And, of course, so when the Abraham Accords came about, it was unsurprising to me to a certain extent that this happened, one. But two, you know, when we talk about military action against Iran, I think another way we could approach it is to deny Iran operating space. And one would be to strengthen Iraqi sovereignty. Uh, but we'd also have to approach Lebanon and Hezbollah deny uh, Iranian transfer of weapons and materials to Hamas and Hezbollah. What are your thoughts on that? And is that something we could potentially coordinate with some of like you, uh, the, some of the Emiratis and others in the region to prevent Iran from having such an illicit influence on the situation? Sure. I mean, I think you raised two points that I'd, I'd want to touch on here. One is, you know, the, the Arab peace agreements, it was probably their their greatest test during this war, right? I mean, they had just signed the agreements, the Emiratis, Bahrainis, Moroccans, um, and Sudanese. They had just signed the, the agreement, you know, in, in the previous fall. So, you know, you're talking about, I don't know, seven months later, eight months later, war breaks out. So it's the first test. And there was a question of whether it would hold. 
And at the end of the day, look, there are still tensions and you still see Arab states that are sympathetic to the Palestinians. But I think they ultimately came down uh, on the side of the sort of rationale that um, the Palestinians can't determine the national interests of these Arab countries, that they can still support Palestinian nationalism. By the way, we can all support Palestinian nationalism. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that you would subordinate that to all else um, is a bit strange. Um, you know, that you'd make, you know, your own regional needs um, a, a less of a priority than than the Palestinian issue is a strange thing. We've seen it for, for I think, far too long. And I think it's very positive that, that we're beginning to see changes in this way. It, it's a bit more transactional, but it's also, I think, a realization that the Israelis aren't going anywhere, probably not going to be defeated anytime soon. So you might as well, you know, accept the region as it is rather than as perhaps you wanted it to be 50 years ago, or 70 years ago. Um, you know, as for the Iran issue, um, you know, I, I talk about this at length in the book. Uh, there's a chapter we call the war between wars. And it's what Israel is trying to do around the region to mitigate the influence and the malign activity of Iran. And, you know, Iran has spread its, te its, its tentacles all over the Middle East. Right. It's Hezbollah. It's Shiite militias in Syria. It's Shiite militias in Iraq. It's the Houthis in Yemen. It's, you know, um, I mean, you, you can see, obviously, with Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, you see them everywhere. And it does raise the question now about whether the Israelis with their Arab allies, with the United States, with other Western countries have the will to push back against Iran in a holistic way. I have not seen that in the Biden administration thus far. In fact, what we're seeing instead is an effort to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, which kind of deliberately ignores a lot of this regional behavior. Um, and it's one of the reasons why the Israelis were so steadfastly against it back in 2015. It's also why, you know, uh, the Arabs have themselves, Saudis, Emiratis and others have been not particularly pleased um, as, as well. So there is, I think, a question of if the deal does not happen, and, and no one knows yet what the fate of this deal will be, but, you know, does the administration have a plan in the face of Iranian intransigence to address not only the nuclear issue, but to address all of these other things that the region is so nervous about, so unhappy about, Israel obviously only being just one of them? I guess the argument from the administration or from supporters of the JCPOA are that if you can get towards some sort of more normalized relationship with Iran, that it will feel less motivated to try and destabilize Israel by other means. Do you see them lessening their attacks on Israel? Or is, do we, should we understand the, the attempts to destabilize Israel as, in essence, a response to Iran perceiving the attack uh, from, from the Western parties? Oh, and I think, I think you need to understand that Iran um, exists in part to, um, to attack Israel. I mean, I, I should say not Iran, the regime in Iran. Right, that this Islamic Republic sees Israel as its primary regional enemy, 
um, and seeks nothing less than its destruction. And it says so on a fairly regular basis, calling for Israel to be wiped off the map. We've seen multiple leaders express this very sentiment. Um, and, you know, with regard to the JCPOA, the problem is, is that, you know, it, it didn't include any regional um, demands. So, um, and in fact, you know, one of the, the primary critiques of the deal is that within five years of its signing, um, uh, or five years of its enactment, um, you'd see the end of the arms embargo. Then at eight years, you'd see the end of the ballistic missile embargo. Um, then you'd see the sunsets on all of the other sanctions by years 12, 13, 14, 15, to the point that Iran still has pretty much a clear path to, um, to building a nuke. And uh, so it, it was kicking the can down the road while giving Iran $150 billion, give or take, that's the number that's often thrown around. And that money ultimately, and we know that money trickles back down into the coffers of Iran's proxies, right? So then what we've effectively done is only punted on the nuclear deal while allowing Iran to replenish its coffers and those of its proxies that are dead set on attacking Israel. But by the way, also not just Israel. I mean, we've seen attacks by Iranian proxies against American forces in the region in recent months. Um, and that should be a cause for real concern. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with a deal that um, that tries to get uh, Iran to curb its malign activity. The problem is you've got to figure out how to do it in such a way that addresses all of it at once because the Iranians will say, sure, well, let's just do this first and then we'll come back to the other stuff. Well, you're never coming back to that stuff. They're, they're not going to negotiate that, right? You're asking them to change their spots and they don't really want to negotiate what they see as a core element of their regime. So um, we've got our work cut out for us. Um, I, I wish the JCPOA had been enough. Um, I don't think it was. And of course, without it, outside of it, we've seen an increase in their enrichment of uh, nuclear materials. So uh, there's seen, there needs to be a third way because it does, neither strategy seems to be really uh, addressing the, the underlying issues. Correct. Although I'll just I'll just add one more thing, though, John. You know, um, even when the JCPOA was in force. Um, Iran was hiding elements of its nuclear program. And we, you know, we learned that you may recall the Israelis had that remarkable operation where they, you know, went into a secret nuclear warehouse and spirited away, you know, hundreds of thousands of documents related to the nuclear, nuclear program. And, you know, the IAEA subsequently learned of other secret facilities related to Iran's nuclear program that were not declared during the JCPOA negotiations or its signing or even subsequently, this only came to light as the result of Israeli espionage. And, um, you know, I think it, 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 it probably underscores one thing above all else, which is it's really hard to trust this regime, knowing what this regime does um, from a nuclear mendacity perspective, but also from a support for terrorism, malign regional activity. Um, Iran is still a real, a real challenge. So in the book, you also look at a document that indicated Hamas plans on drawing Israel into a two-front war. Talk, talk about that and what does that mean for the larger situation uh, in Gaza? Sure. Um, so I, I got this document in 2018. An Israeli said, you know, you might want to take a look at this. And I, I looked at it. It said it was a, a letter from Danny Danone, then ambassador from Israel to the UN, 
complaining to the UN that Hamas was setting up rocket facilities in Lebanon with the idea that in the future, when there was a war between the Gaza Strip and, and Israel, that Hamas could potentially fire rockets out of Lebanon as well, drawing Israel into a two-front conflict. Now, when I got the letter, I was thinking to myself, what am I supposed to do with this? There hasn't been a, a, a Lebanon war in more than a decade. You know, how does this become news? And, and by the way, how do you prove it? Right um, now, when the war broke out this last May, we actually saw six rockets fired out of Lebanon. There were no, um, as far as we could tell, there, I don't think there were any um, claims of responsibility for these rockets. By the way, most of them didn't land in Israel. A bunch of them landed in the Mediterranean. No damage done. Everything was fine. But it did begin to kind of, it, it raised the question for me, was that letter real? Was there something about that letter that maybe we saw an inkling uh, of this during the most recent conflict? Now, Hamas never claimed responsibility still to this day for those attacks, but I did think that it was worth putting in the book that this is a concern for the Israelis. They don't want a two-front war. They really don't. We actually, I mean, we just uh, marked the anniversary of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and that was a surprise attack against Israel from multiple fronts. It was arguably the most devastating war for Israel since its war of independence. It was taken by surprise by, you know, very prepared Arab armies. Um, and so I think the Israelis are still very nervous about that two-front conflict. And I think Hamas and probably Hezbollah and probably Iran are all very cognizant of that and still may look to launch a war of that sort in the future. It'll be something to watch. So part of the pattern with Iran and its these proxy forces in the region, Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, elements in Iraq, et cetera, even Af Afghanistan, is not just shoveling cash at them, but trying to up their game in terms of the level of technology. Is the concern with the ability to launch from Lebanon that Hamas would have access increasingly to sophisticated drones or drones with a ca attack capability or or more more guided uh, munitions coming out of Lebanon? Well, you know, it's interesting because we saw during the most recent conflict that Hamas had gained some new capabilities. Um, you know, they were able to use the aerial UAVs. Um, but they also had underwater uh, UAVs that the Israelis struck. These, this was new capabilities for them. Um, you know, we continue to see uh, Hamas be able to launch more um, larger salvos um, that they can reach deeper into Israeli territory, that the rockets are um, bigger payload, that they are somewhat more um, uh, accurate than in, in, um, in years past. The PGM issue is one that I think is primarily, if not entirely, in the hands of Hezbollah right now. That Hezbollah has tried to start to convert its arsenal um, from unguided to guided. They have a retrofitting system that apparently for something like $15,000, they can take a dumb rocket and turn it into a smart one. A little bit of software, some, you know, uh, some fins. Um, GPS system on the cone, and you know they're they're cooking with gas, and so we haven't seen Hezbollah unleash these yet. I think there's a fear in Israel. By the way, that's the primary reason why Israel's 
bombing stuff with regularity inside Syria right now as they're trying to prevent the transfer of that uh, technology into the hands of Hezbollah. So I think you raise a, a good question, John, which is, you know, can um, can Hamas learn that technology if they have some infrastructure in Lebanon? Can they pick up on that technology? Can they transfer it? By the way, a lot of this is it's about engineers learning how to do it. So let's say there are some Hamas operatives in Lebanon now learning from Hezbollah. What happens when they go back to uh, to Gaza? Uh, can they bring that with them? And can Iran begin to smuggle those weapons there as well? I, you know, I think every time we see one of these wars erupt, you know, it was 2009, 2012, 2014, and now 2021, we see improvements in the arsenal. We see improvements in the technology. I would expect nothing less the next round, whenever that may be. So I, I missed the piece about the the underwater drones. Just what were they doing? Uh, what what was the functionality? They were they were docked and they were struck by the Israelis. I think early on, you know, it sounds like the Israelis had some pretty good intel throughout uh, the war, but on this in particular, I think there was at one point um, it, they believed there was going to be an attack on Israel's um, gas platforms. As you know, the Israelis have recently discovered gas. They think this is the way to be energy independent and also obviously generating. Uh, more wealth for the country. I think you know it shouldn't come as a surprise that uh, Hamas wanted to target that. It would have been a massive coup for them to be able to do it, and the Israelis were able to take out these underwater drones. Um, you know, I think in the very early days of the conflict uh, and neutralize that particular threat. I want to bring this to a close. You can't talk about this situation and not acknowledge what a massive human tragedy Gaza is. I mean, it's there's no means of economic development. It's entirely dependent on aid. It is exclusively controlled by a terrorist organization. The civilians there may not have wanted this conflict. Uh, they certainly paid the price for it. Is there not to have you solve the Middle East in the remaining few minutes that we're <laughs> that we have? But is there any hope on the horizon that? Improving the situation with Fatah on the West Bank can offset. Is that should we see this violence from Hamas in May as an extinction burst? Is it you know operations as usual? Is it we should expect more of the same? Is there any way that political progress with with Fatah could actually? undermine Hamas uh, support for Hamas within the Gaza Strip? Is there any way to kind of separate the civilians who are, are, are truly, truly victims in this situation from, uh, from, from Hamas leadership? Yeah, I mean, look, I think you nail it. Um, you know, you got, I don't know, it's 1.8, 1.9, 2 million people um, living in this tiny enclave on the Mediterranean and it's misery. There can be no doubt that they are living in, in misery. I think it's also important to point out that um, you know Hamas brought a lot of this on itself. Um, you know, through even though they won the war, they also or they won their elections. They they brought a war um, to the Gaza Strip. Um, they are they ruled the territory with an iron fist, and there are very few other countries that want to engage with it. Um, it's not a place where you can, you know, uh, 
um, provide assistance, financial or otherwise, and not feel that you may be held liable for the way that that assistance is diverted. And by the way, we, we saw a lot of that um, this most recent round of conflict that you know the, a lot of the cement and building materials did not go toward building um, more infrastructure for the people of uh, of Gaza, but rather went toward the uh, construction of a labyrinth of tunnels that were uh, designed to wage war against Israel, commando warfare. And you know, I think it's just a, a good indication of what we see from Hamas and why this is such a problem from hell. Now, as far as what the administration is trying to do, yes, they're trying to prop up the Palestinian Authority. They're trying to hold it out as a um, uh, a uh, a government that the Palestinians can look to as an alternative for a better future. And I understand the logic behind that because I think to in many extents it's better. There's a problem though, and that is that the West Bank Palestinian Authority is itself viewed very, I think, accurately as extremely corrupt and also not terribly invested in its own people. Um, I mean, Ab- Abbas has basically held on to power since whatever, 2005, 2008. I mean, I mean he's not. Yeah, yeah he, this is not yeah. uh, the, the paragon of uh, a democratic partnership by any. Yeah, I think I Guys, 16 years into a four-year term. Let's just, you know, let's let's put it that way, right? And and so there right. is, I think, a, a, a big question that I think the U.S. needs to answer, which is when this guy goes, what are you going to do to make sure that the West Bank is viable? Because that actually is, the, in my mind, the real question, right? Bibi's gone. A lot of people thought he was a, a hindrance to the peace process. Trump is gone. So two out of the three here, two out of the three relevant leaders have just changed. And, and, and they could be potentially more pragmatic. But Abbas comes with a lot of baggage and not a lot of interest in, in cooperating with the Israelis or the United States. And so I think we're probably in a holding pattern until he's gone. You need some sort of legitimate process that brings in a legitimate leader. And then I think you actually could be dealing with an entirely new set of cards and it could be interesting. But until then, it's really hard for me to imagine that the administration can put lipstick on on the pig that is um, the Palestinian Authority with the leader that's been there now for as long as he has. Is there anybody in the wings or is it just going to be a scrum when the bosses? Look, there there are a lot of others that have stepped up. In fact, we saw some indi- some interesting individuals p- put their names onto lists that were slated for the May, the May elections or the April elections, rather, that were um, that were ultimately canceled. Um, and in fact, one of them is Yasser Arafat's nephew. Um, uh, Nasser al-Qudwa. And he's an interesting guy that broke ranks with the Fatah party, um, broke ranks with, with the Palestinian Authority as we knew it. And uh, he could offer, for example, one alternative. The problem is that, you know, will they hold elections? Will they allow the people themselves to make these selections? You got to remember the last time around, the PLO chose Mahmoud Abbas in something that looked more like um, you know, kind of the the selection process of the Vatican, um, and not so much the election process of the United States, right? Um, and you know, so he was chosen internally, and then they kind of held a vote afterwards to rubber rubber stamp him in as president. I think the Palestinian people, you know, have been exposed to democracies and free markets around the world. They're very educated, and they're very hungry for real change. 
The real risk, though, is, of course, and this gets back to one of the first questions, is if you have elections and it includes Hamas, then you're probably right back to square one. You're in a, a political standoff with a group that cannot lead because of its status as a terrorist organization. So it is truly a Gordian knot. David, final thoughts? It's a huge challenge going ahead, but I think some promising things are, you know, some people are saying that this uber conservative regime in Iran may backfire and instigate a people's revolution of sorts in Iran. And then the Abraham Accords, I think, is interesting as so far as it, it could sort of broaden support and the need for some of these Arab nations to coalesce support in defiance to the uh, conservative Iranian regime, which would benefit the United States and Israel. But, you know, the, the issue of Lebanon, I think, is a crucial player in all this, especially in terms of Hezbollah and how they've more or less destroyed Lebanon, unfortunately. Agreed. Well, I think from the Biden administration's perspective, they're just hoping this stays out of the headlines. They've got enough other fish to fry at the moment. Do you see any any initiative on, on the part of the administration to, to move the agreements with Iran forward to readdress it? It seems like, it, it, I mean, whatever's happening is happening at a very low key level. They're trying to keep it as quiet as they can. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that um, I think we're seeing right now is that um, that the U.S. is potentially willing to in, enter into an agreement that they, some people are calling less for less, so just a more modest agreement as a way to get back in and to create a baseline. Fear, of course, is that you get the Iranians into a deal like that and they're not going to want to negotiate anything else because they're going to have minimal restrictions on the activities that, you know, uh, that they're already engaged in. Um, and so there's a there's a there's a real concern there. But, you know, one other thing to just note here is that, you know, when we talk about this conflict, we talk about the Middle East in general. It's, it's really important to remember that you have a U.S. administration and actually just not this White House. I mean, consistent administrations want to get the heck out of the Middle East. Right. I mean, they want to pivot to China. They want to move toward, um, you know, a, a new security paradigm. And if they're going to do that, um, and and I think there are arguments for and arguments against. But if you're going to do that, then you need to find other countries that you can rely on to preserve the U.S.-led world order. And I think that it's certainly not going to be Iran. It's not going to be Hamas. And when you see battles like this, I think it's important to you know allow Israel to have the time and space, as Biden largely did, to tackle this problem. Uh, because ultimately what you want is is a system that is run by countries, not terrorist groups, not terrorist proxies, and, and not terrorist supporters. Well, on that note, I think we will have to end it there for today. The book is Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Jonathan Shanzer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, guys. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military defense and national security issues that matter. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter, Summary of Defense News. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.